I'm Abby Aronson Zosher, and this is Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we're joined by Professor Abigail Aronson Zosher. Though Professor Aronson Zosher is a heavily trained classical guitarist and studied under David Leisner, she also got a master's in jazz at New England Conservatory and studied with legendary guitarist Mick Goodrick. Abby's also the recipient of the G.W. Chadwick Medal and has several albums out with the Abby and Norm Group. As the director of the Joni Mitchell Ensemble here at Berklee College of Music, she has had an enormous impact on some really talented students who've gone on to have illustrious careers like Annie Clark of St. Vincent, Molly Tuttle, Adrian Lanker of Big Thief, and Angie Swan. Abby digs deep into how to encourage students to discover their voice and apply the universal practices of musicianship to go beyond their perceived limitations. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Abigail Aronson Zosher. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. I'm Kim Perlack, chair of the guitar department. And with us today, as usual, we have Assistant Chair Cheryl Bailey. Hey, Cheryl. Buddy. And we have our Senior Coordinator, Ian Steed. Hey, Ian. Hey, all. And our special guest today is Professor Abby Aronson Zosher. Hey, Abby. Good to see you. Say hello to everybody who's not watching, who's listening. Hello. How are you? It's good. Thank to you see for you. having me today. You're welcome. Thank you for being here. Um, and the first uh, question we ask everybody is, uh, Abby, are you drinking coffee? And how do you take your coffee? Um, no. Instant. Okay, no. Uh, well, what I am drinking right now is uh, Bigelow mm. vanilla chai. Ooh, beautiful. Beautiful. With uh, sugar and... Uh, a bunch of condensed milk. Mm, really nice. That's really nice. So are you a tea drinker instead of being a coffee drinker? I like coffee. I like it best in ice cream. Mm, my dad is a coffee and ice cream guy, so I understand that. Yeah. How about you? Are, is everybody here coffee now? Uh, well, yeah, I have coffee. I've, I went black with my coffee really since I've been at Berkeley, and I don't think I can go back. Tasting that. Cheryl's like kind of really taken it to another level and is roasting her own coffee. That's cool. I'll hook you up. If you, if you like coffee, I, I can hook you up. And Ian has like a mellow approach, like kind of a medium roast, kind of smooth, flavorful kind of thing going. Yeah, I'm drinking water today, though. Oh, that's good. That's good. It's good yeah. to hydrate. Yeah. Welcome um, to Water Talk. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Um, so, Abby, we are so thrilled that um, you're here because not only have you taught at Berkeley for a long time, um, but also you've had a tremendous number of alumni come through in very different styles who have done incredibly well. And um, I think if most people know who you are, even though 
you're a player of classical music and jazz and you're a songwriter and a composer and an arranger, I think a lot of people know you because of your students who have moved on and, and talk about you often in interviews and um, just talk about all the things that they learned from you. And, and it's not like a straight up expectation. It's not like, oh, I, I am a classical player and my student is obviously a classical player. These are people who came to you and then took somehow all the things that you taught them and brought them into their own voice. So I'm hoping we can touch on that a little bit today too. I had, um, I actually had an image for this the other day, which I shared with one alumna who's, who was having, uh, a wonderful, successful night. And I sent her a message, which is that I felt a lot like one of these lion tamer people, not tamer, but lion care people that, that, that take care of the cubs. You know what I mean? And that they have a bond with them and these little, then they're, you know, beautiful little beings. And then they, then they grow up and then the lion person comes back. And of course the lion person's like this big and like, there's this big lion. Right. And, and, but when you come back, you can still talk with them and you always have that relationship and you've given them maybe something that was, uh, that was good for them at the time. And, uh, yeah. We're going to keep coming back to this, but I just want to point out, I think, to a lot of people who are listening that there's a tremendous amount of respect that you have for your students, knowing that you can see when they're your student, all the talent and the potential that they have. And then, um, you know, you are happy and proud and, and not necessarily super surprised when this grows into a position that you also now will learn from. Right. Yeah. Very, very much so. Yeah. I, 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 it's, it's very, very much a, a feedback loop and I, I learn a ton and my creative identity, uh, my creative growth is very much affected by the people that I'm working with as students and as colleagues and everything. So I think it's fair to say that you are an incredibly stylistically deep and versatile musician and professor. And a lot of that has developed over your decades now of work at Berkeley from being in this environment. And so the next question that we ask everybody is kind of like, how did it, how did it feel when you started? Like now after decades of being here, you have this depth and you have this breadth and you have this place that you created in the department with your curriculum. But what did it feel like on your first days at Berkeley? Do you remember? What that felt like. D-A-Z-E. Okay. So the, I do remember that I, I actually, I probably should say, I actually was a little bit tearful after the first week, not because of the content at all, but simply because, uh, in that particular time, there was a bit of a room crunch. We were, we didn't have the new building. It was many, many years ago. And, um, uh, I just remember it was so many hours and I, I felt, um, I've got to keep up. I, I, you know, I, I had to develop some, you know, stamina. You mean you had to teach so many hours yes. in a row? Yes. So how many hours in the, in the early days were you teaching like in I a think, row? I think it was a long, I, I can't remember exactly, but I think it was a half hour lunch and it went from very early morning to, to kind of late afternoon. And I, I'm sure that also had to do with my schedule too, because I was, you know, it was a, uh, I was doing other things at the time also. This was back in 95. So, um, uh, and also just 
room availability at the time. And, you know, this is before the Uchita building. So, right. And so within that time frame, mm-hmm. you would see over a dozen students and how many different styles, like how many different styles and things do you think you saw? I remember my first heavy metal student because I had to ask my husband, Norm said, what do I do? So and, and, and to clarify for people who don't know, Abby Aronson Zosher is married to Norm Zosher, who's also a professor in the guitar department. Okay. So go on. Yeah. So, um, but then after that, um, what I've found is some of the most meaningful, con- meaningful things that I can go over with people are just the things that I have for my own, uh, that I've found the most helpful for my own musical uh, self, um, mm-hmm. things from a lot of them from classical backgrounds, um, but not necessarily, um, limited to that things, interpretive things. There, there's a lot of themes that go through in terms of like groove and pulse and ensemble playing and, and dynamics, um, that, you know, kind of really affect, like for instance, in my ensemble yesterday, um, we were talking about, you know, so someone brought in a, 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 a track and she had done, um, vocals and guitar playing, which I knew were very, uh, emotive and, 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 uh, musically, musically, uh, had a musical landscape, but I wasn't hearing it. So I was like, did you compress that a lot? And, um, that's the kind of thing, like you notice when you're listening to a classical radio station, you know, so all of a sudden, Norm always says, right, I'll say, darn those dynamics, you know, they get really quiet. And they're, you know, um, but it, I, I'm still trying to kind of figure out how that, you know, how these two different aesthetics can uh, find a way to, to be the best for each situation that, that arises, you know, how to apply them best. Have you found that there are some constants for you? You know, I mean, I know that you have people who come to you for the constants of music, regardless of style. And then you're also helping them shape styles that are similar to your own, but maybe also different. Like, what are the things that you keep coming back to where you think, you know, these are the constant things that I seem to hit on with every student who's creative and and, uh, in their own way? I would say maybe not every, but well, every, hmm. okay. I would say most, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that, that if, if I think people want to be seen, not visually, but you know, um, and heard and, um, something that I find helpful is, uh, if at times I sit back actually and just listen to what they're doing, um, that, that sounds really silly. Listen to something that they've done for an outside of class, um, thing, um, anything, whether it's a recording or whatever they're doing in their own musical life. And that helps. For instance, this recording yesterday that I was thinking of, you know, we're working on all this stuff in class and then we listen to tracks that are rough, you know, uh, not, mixed in or not a final product. And then when I heard it in the final product, I was like, wait a sec, that's all compressed. Right. And I don't hear those, that emotion that, that, that I heard in your, you know, um, so, 
that I think, I think hearing them trying to hear who they are and maybe connect with who they are and listen, I have to try to remind myself to listen. It's very smart people that I respect in terms of, uh, human relationships remind me, listen, listen, listen. In fact, that, that's what, um, Jeff was saying yesterday. We had a wonderful meeting, Mm -hmm. uh, yesterday. I don't know if you, but, um, and he was saying, listen, and then listen some more. Right. And, um, that's, you're talking about Jeff Kluge, who's our Dean of wellness. Right. He's just came in, did did a listening workshop. And and I think that's what you're talking about is trying to hear who the person is, Mm -hmm. what they need. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, one thing I love about your teaching is that I think you found a fun and creative way that you keep developing to honor the person and who they are and their unique voice, but also maybe try to push them out of the comfort zone that might hold them back with that so that they can develop other skills. And so, um, like I'm thinking of the dice game that you do with the modes. I'm thinking that your tagline melodic minor, you'll like it when you're older. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and all of these fun games that involve like dice and they involve cards and they involve candy and, and tattoos, like not real tattoos, but like fake tattoos. Um, can you talk about that for a minute? Can you talk about creating some sort of comfortable community that allows people to claim who they are as an artist, but then not be afraid to branch out into areas of music theory or guitar playing that they might feel is challenging for them? Well, I can remember, first of all, actually, if I could just take a a quick pause, because I know you tolerate my many directions of of my many trajectories so well, and to to wonderful advantage of the curriculum, so thank you. Um, But I I just wanted to point out that the atmosphere here, because of what you guys create, is it allows people to develop what they do best and at the same time keep everything in a very organized and well-managed uh you know set up an overall structure um but i think that what really what you're talking about that hopefully maybe i do sometimes hopefully that i try to do is what you guys do with both faculty and students so Thank you. It really is a wonderful thing to see all the great things going on in the department. So if you're watching this now, go ahead and look and see there's lots of great things going on. I'm it'll be different things right when this comes out than when this is being recorded, who knows what, but, um, anyway, have a look because wonderful things are always going on. And, uh, anyway, I just wanted to take a break and point that out. Cause I think that is, um, rare and wonderful thing. Thanks. Thanks, Abby. Um, so talk about, tell us a little bit about in depth, like all the things that you do with your students to create that kind of same community, but, but in-house, um, cause I think that's what a lot of your students remember from you. And I think it did give a lot of people the courage to mm. take their skill set as something that, that could be built on and that they don't have to hide behind. Yeah. Really can um, branch out and still be themselves. I think it's when people actually hear, for instance, like say if it's improvisation, mm-hmm. um, if some connection, I, I can remember feeling like, oh, I don't improvise. I can remember feeling that way. Um, 
I can remember because I was in the studio with Norm, who is a seasoned, masterful jazz musician. And um, I had to go in and sound check his guitar. This is way back when we were students. And um, I was like, I don't do that. I don't, yeah, it's an electric, you know, and, and it was very scary for me. This was a while ago. Um, look at what's happened. But anyway, um, uh, I can remember that feeling. Um, and what really, I can remember the feeling of connecting with improvisation um, and really feeling like it was my own. Uh, and I think finding a way to do that, um, for me, it was, I remember I was driving to a mechanic, um, and I could actually sing over the changes of blue bossa in the car without, and, and I could hear all the chord tones and I could actually, you know, like going through a jungle gym and knowing where to grab. I felt like I, I and I remember that moment. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and if you can find a way, people have different ways, you know, of uh, connecting with things, whatever. So some of the ways you found um, involve like games, right? Like we have the final exam materials and the proficiency materials. So yeah. tell everybody a little bit about um, the dice or some of the other games that you play. Well, I've been through many stages with the dice and I don't think I've quite arrived yet, but um, I started out with, uh, well, we've got, we've got a very nice variable going on in the, um, uh, in, in all the, I guess all, all four first levels of the test, you've got, you've got seven keys, seven modes and, uh, seven degrees, right? So that's just too beautiful. The only problem is, is that dice have six sides. So that, that, that adds kind of a, a bit of a complication there. So I've, I had to get six sided dice, three six sided dice and divide up one of them thinking probably like from the root and from the fifth, maybe have to share or, or from the root and from the seventh, but then that gets to be a little trouble when the seventh degree is a very nice one. Um, like with melodic minor. So you run into some issues there and I did investigate, I did research seven sided dice. They were really expensive. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, there is this whole dungeons and dragons, odd sided dice thing that goes on. So th these are possible, but I looked into it, not so great. Anyway, I started out with plastic dice that you could put stickers on, but stickers, I don't know, not so good. So anyway, I got into uh, wooden dice and with a little engraver thing, mm -hmm. a little battery powered, and you can actually make it textured that way. And like, you know how kids blocks are, they have texture, like you can cut in the letter they cut in the letter and it has a kind of a texture to it. And then you can paint the surface that's on the top. So you can run into that kind of thing with, but it's, it's very small, but you can make it so that you can, uh, toss, you know, you toss either the, um, the, the, you toss the, the key dice, which is, you know, has all the, the seven keys that we have on our proficiency list that, that we're supposed to do. Um, and the, say the scale degree, dice, right. Or the, 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 not the scale degree, but the, yeah, the root degree, right. starting degree. Uh, so you could toss, you know, B flat and then you plug in whatever mode you're in, uh, whatever semester you're in, mm -hmm. uh, B flat melodic minor from the toss this one third degree, right. Or you can take your key die, your key die, I should say not dice key die. And, uh, you know, toss, uh, F 
-hmm. And then you toss the modal die and F whatever that is, Lydian, right? Mm -hmm. F Lydian, and then you play that. So it can give you, depending on which pair of dice you toss, you can kind of cover the whole exam and surprise yourself because it's like not being able to tickle yourself. It helps if it, if you can surprise yourself for the test. And I think back in the, in the days of being on campus all the time too, you also had a lot of gatherings, like very very famously, um, your Joni Mitchell ensemble are perpetually through time now are called the Joni. So once a Joni, always a Joni. That's true actually. Yeah. Right. And so there are Joni hangs and then just like Abby student hangs and there are a lot of snacks involved. There are a lot of snacks involved. Yeah. And there are fun crafts. Like you guys make one time you all made us all necklaces to wear, um, matching necklaces to wear to graduation. Yes. Uh, which was wonderful. The provost, um, who's going to be our guest soon was very jealous. I believe at the matching necklaces. You can work with that. It was noticeable. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and there are people really come and they work on music and they play these games and they work yeah. on things that are hard for them. And I, I mention it because I think it's so memorable and it's something that all of us have dropped into time again, as chairs or other faculty, we all hang, we'll have a snack and play. And I think what it shows is that if people trust each other and if they're having a good time and they have this kind of hang, if they have a community, they will try things that are outside their comfort zone. Yes. And I think that I bring this all up to say that one of the most impressive things I think about your teaching is that you get people to go very deeply outside of their comfort zone and then use that experience to empower them in who they are. Because I think a lot of students have this misconception that if you know who you are, you don't let anything else in. Yeah. Because and that's understandable. That's human nature. And, and in reality, the more open you are, you know, you, you will, you, you will bring other things in and you'll enhance who you are. It doesn't mask who you are. It doesn't dilute who you are, but there's something about it. There's something about the openness that you create that allow people to become more of themselves. And it almost sounds like a contradiction when you think about it, but it's not, that's not how this works in music. And, and so you've just found this way at, not to trick people into, into yeah. learning, but, but, of that, and that's always fun, but you know, you've built a real, like a big community of, of it, you know? Okay. Here's a, here's, a, here's an example. But first of all, can I say though, this really is all starts at the, uh, at the top with the way you guys set up so that it allows us to do these kinds of things as teachers. So we let you do your crazy projects and exactly. your, <laughs> and you know, um, and you also keep it, keep it sensible as right. well. It extends to guest artist events that you've had with different alumni. It extends to, um, rehearsal time concerts, um, all the recordings that you've done at the burn, mm-hmm. uh, which is our Berkeley international radio network. Um, so it's a lot of projects. Like I think Abby, it's fair to say that there's at least two or three nights a week where you're spending very long nights and yeah. there's a lot of students involved in all of those nights. It's like this very big community of, um, incredibly creative, eclectic musicians that you're with all the time at Berkeley. And so Trader Joe's was open until 10 Trader Joe's is open until 10. Yeah. I think that they are missing you. 
Yeah, they actually did. Did you know about this? Did I tell you about this? I can remember the day I forgot my wallet. Oh, and, and it was a couple of years ago. Someone who was just telling me, okay, so I forgot my wallet and I went down and I had my whole lunch thing all bought and they were just like, don't worry about it. Just do it tomorrow. Cause they knew me so well. <laughs> well, that's great. And also I want to say that you've extended this to the faculty lunch situation. We have our lunch bunch on, on your days and there's a snack buffet. Really? It almost became a competition. Like who can get the best snacks from Trader Joe's? Right. But in the end, what happens is because you're all hanging out and having snacks, like, of course, we're doing what you're getting the students to do. We're all sharing our ideas and hanging out and getting to know each other. So it's um, it's a conspiracy of, of guitar community, like fueled by snacks and crafts and games. OK, I have a thought, um, which is that, uh, uh, OK, this is one of my favorite. I have a couple of favorite teaching moments. OK. Um, one of them was a, a wonderful student um, who graduated about two years. Was it last year or the year before? I think it was two years. Ago. No, it was last year because of the pandemic. I remember. And um, they uh, were having a. They were freshmen or early on freshmen or were sophomore. And um, I had another student who ha was already. I think he was like a senior, and he. I don't know if he ever saw that group, the tree that falls. Um, he did all kinds of hitting the guitar and really gorgeous, impressive stuff. And the, the first student, uh, was in their lesson and they, um, they were feeling a little bit kind of like, you know, what, who, you know, what's going on here. Nobody hears me and I've, and I'm working on this stuff and it's whatever, I don't know. It wasn't, you know, and, um, this other student, John, uh, came to visit me cause it was after hours. It was like seven at night and he was actually working in the, uh, I think the film scoring department or something at that point. And he came to visit the room. And when he dropped by, I was like, Oh, play for this person. It was, it was, Abby was the first student. It was having the lesson, same name. Um, and I just handed him my guitar and he did this incredibly wonderful thing, which I can share if we want to post it. It's just beautiful. Uh, where he was doing a lot of hitting and tapping and one might think, well, what do I have? I really don't play in that style a lot. It's, it's a very athletic, wonderful style. But what we worked on was phrasing, classical phrasing, because his, th his parts were so complicated. There's a million voices going on. And if you don't hear the different voices and where they are in your hand and stuff, then you're not really having as much, uh, fun and understanding of the music and interpretive power and phrasing and everything that you could have. And it, and it's, it's, it's hearable anyway. So that's what I worked on with John when he was a student, but he came back to visit and he played for, um, for Abby and Abby was said, yeah, right. So great. That's really hard, you know, but Abby then kind of was getting hooked and getting into it and started talking with him and, and, and John, started talking with Abby and next thing I knew they were doing some kind of thing where uh, the Abby would drop by and John would, would teach Abby parts of that same piece. And Abby hadn't done any of this tapping stuff before. And they worked out a thing. And then Abby next, I'll fast forward. She played it on guitar night. She played that piece that she heard that she was so like, well, why are you making me listen to this? Um, cause it's so hard. 
and she played it on guitar night, like the following year, I think it was. And, um, it was just really cool. That's really cool. And, and John and I got to smile at each other because, you know, that was, that was a fun thing. And it was very rewarding for John too. You know, so anyway. talking about this, I, I've just noticed that you're able to, at this point, take a lot of the things in your background and find a way to help someone else, even if what they're doing isn't in your style. But in the beginning, when, when you were a student, you were a very serious classical guitar student in your own education and went to New England Conservatory and then made a very drastic move that most people never make in the sense that when you went to your graduate school education, you came out of one of the top classical programs in the world and then went to one of the top jazz programs in the world for guitar and studied with Mick Goodrick, who later was our colleague here at Berkeley again. He had left Berkeley, gone to NEC, and then come back later. Um, what was that like? I mean, what did it feel like to make the leap from classical to jazz? And and you've already touched on it a little bit, but how does that experience of what you went through to do that play a role in the way you think about teaching? So it's like a two-part question, but the first one I think is first for you, like what did it feel like to branch out that far and that deep into jazz coming from classical music? Um, I had help. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the people that helped me were people that saw me, for instance, Mick, um, he gave me a chance because, you know, you had to audition to be a student, but he knew David Leisner, my classical teacher, who Kim knows well. Um, and, uh, he kind of knew me from my other identity. And I think he, he, he listened, you know, he gave me a chance. It wasn't just, you know, so he listened and said, well, this is a person who isn't you know hasn't spent years in the program but you know maybe there's something that we can work on um and there were plenty of people who don't see you and you can definitely learn things from them mm -hmm. uh you just can't always um while you can learn within their frame of reference that they offer you it doesn't mean you have to accept their um, end point that they have set up for you in their mind. It, it, it doesn't have to do, they're not thinking so hard about you, really, you know? What were some of the things that you worked on right away with Mick when you were making the change? Do you um, the first thing he asked me was um, whether I knew the relationship between Lydian flat seven and altered dominant. That's yeah. the first thing. Did you know that at the time? No, 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 <laughs> not at all. Despite my husband's best efforts, because Norm was the first and the hugest help at the, making the transition and, and the one who had faith that I could do it. Um, but uh, yeah, that I didn't know. And then the next thing, uh, I think even the same lesson, first lesson, which was really cool, which I do a lot with students, is he went over the Berkeley position rules which are um, not ones that are required anymore, but it's really cool if you, if you go in and look at what these rules were back from the, the William Levitt books. Um, if you try to play a C, this is what he had me do, play a C major scale in every single position. And it's just really neat to think of it that way. 
um, uh, the position rules are such that it makes you really think outside the box mm -hmm. to try to do that. So yeah, those were the two things. And then, um, and then, uh, yeah. Did, did you find that it took off for you at a certain point? Like, was it hard for a while? And then you started, as you yeah. were talking about being in the car, like you started to see connections between classical music and jazz and popular music. Yeah. Yeah. I would say definitely it, it, it was very, uh, I can remember someone saying to me, um, when I got the, uh, I believe it was when I got lessons with Mick because everybody was auditioning and, and he only had a couple spots. Um, and I remember, uh, uh, this very nice guy, very, very, um, advanced grad student jazz piano player. And he came up to me, he's like, wow, you got that. And, um, wow. Cause like, I thought only really good people got that. And, um, and I remember thinking at the time he wasn't even trying to be hurtful he thought it was so obvious that it, it was just, and people just aren't thinking like, it's, well, it's just, yeah, I mean, he had no idea what he was saying. <laughs> well, also, I think it brings up that interesting point that his perspective was very singular. Right. Because right. when he said you have to be good to get that. He meant good at what he thought jazz was. Right. Exactly. It was looking at it like a much broader Right. Like, are you a good musician? Right. Right. Are these tools like of the jazz style or of the classical style? Right. So exactly. in that way, it's almost like that answered my second question. That is in a lot of ways what you took into your own teaching for other people. Yeah. And, and people have really wonderful, interesting things that they bring to the table. Mm -hmm. Um, very individual things. Um, and I always think that that's a really important part of what you do. It doesn't mean that you can't, or it doesn't mean that, that, that a huge irreplaceable part of your work isn't to work on the weaknesses and the things that you haven't done yet. I don't even want to say weaknesses. It's just things you haven't done so much of yet. Mm -hmm. Um, but those other things, uh, the, the things that are kind of strengths or things that you just have as part of you those will also come to bear in a really beautiful way if you kind of keep your mind open to them. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really respect your humility. Um, but I want everyone to know that, um, how tremendous it is like the tremendous depth you have to have as a musician and as a teacher to be able to do what you do. I mean, coming as a classical musician myself, like, and recently branching more out, in improvisation, like when Abby says there were some hard days, like these are crushing days when yeah. you feel like you know nothing about the instrument, where it just takes you out emotionally. And um, to work through that and to realize that, you know, who you are is deeper than any one thing that you're doing is so freeing because um, it shows you that you can be who you are as a musician and have different expressions and. And I think having you on the faculty, Abby, is, is hugely inspiring. It was to me and to many faculty members because you just will walk on stage and you'll perform a song that you wrote. You'll play classical guitar. You'll play jazz guitar. You'll play bass. 
you'll play in an ensemble, you'll play solo, you'll take 15 of your students and play in a chart that you've written and intricately made all the parts. You, you almost can, it feels like you can do anything. Aww. You have metal students who are with you, you have bluegrass students, you have pop students, you have jazz students, all at the absolute highest levels, right? And you all can look up, we'll add some of Abby's alums into her intro. Um, but it, it's really tremendously deep what you do. And um, I just want to say that because I think there's a lot of humility, obviously, like, that goes into being that way. But the phrasing thing really is uber phrasing, uber allist, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it, and and phrasing is um, uh, well, it, it's well integrated into classical pedagogy, but I don't know that it's as, I don't know that it's as standardly integrated into other pedagogies, which are probably newer. Other styles of guitar are newer than classical guitar, even though classical guitar is very new. It's really, it's got, you know, it's classical, uh, family with it. That's very old. Um, so, you know, and I'm learning a ton, uh, teaching with Berta Rojas, uh, in rep class about, uh, the whole re relationship between, I think that's really happening right here in our department because of the people involved. Um, the whole relationship between, uh, classical music performance and the aesthetics and, uh, non-classical or less classical or jazz or, or singer songwriter or anything else, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, going on. Yeah. And if you're listening, she's just making layers with her hands. A right. There's right. a lot of connections. So. Yeah. Like that thing. Uh, <laughs> just like that. Yeah. Um, put hands on top of each other. Yeah. Hey, Cheryl, as you're listening to all of this, um, what's your perspective? What's on your mind? Wow. Well, it's really inspiring, Abby, just hearing you talk about your approach and your philosophy and your experience. Uh, I'm curious because you have incredible ears and you sing everything. So I'm just curious about your development of that in your own study and learning and how you use that with your students, which I know you do, but you always, you know, you will do it sometimes as a joke, you know, something you sing some insane melody or phrase, but it, it is really incredible what you do. You know, I'm like, how does she do that? Wow. That's burning. <laughs> this is, this is so wonderful. Can we do this every week? <laughs> Uh, but but uh, the the thing is is that um, uh, this is the way I feel about you guys. But anyway, anyway. So oh, so yeah, the singing thing was very very much very very important to me. Um, it doesn't have to be important to everybody, but I do feel that an element of it is probably going to be important a lot of the time. Uh, you don't have to decide you want to sing all over the place the way I enjoy doing, but if you can recreate the pitch inside yourself without your fingers getting in the way, um, and the way to do that is with, by singing it back, it, it really does help. It's funny, like, um, yesterday in a lesson, um, I was having somebody sing, I think melodic minor just from the root and, um, 
because uh, we're playing it, you know. But then I had them sing it just to see if they're really hearing the raised six and seven. And um, the first time they sang it, uh, it reminded me of Chinese checkers when the marble is rolling around and it doesn't have a little thing to fall into yet or it doesn't, right? And then it literally took one time for them to sit and find the little thing for the marble to roll into. I don't know if you've ever seen Chinese checkers, right? The, the marbles roll and then they find a little depression, a little hole to fall into. Um, the, the minute that they took a second and let the marble fall in of the sixth and seventh degrees, you know, and they knew where it was. I mean, and it, then it was there. It, they, they knew it, it was there. They, they sang it right on. Um, but the first time it was like, their voice was like the marble rolling around, you know? So, uh, I think that even if someone doesn't want to be a singer, um, you know what I mean? It, 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 it's one good tool to use your voice to help you find that knowledge of where these notes are. Um, so I think that's very helpful in terms of my training. Um, I've just always loved singer songwriting music and my mom was a classical singer. Um, but I've always loved, you know, James Taylor and Joni Mitchell has always been a big hook for, well, I started playing guitar because of the Grateful Dead. So, um, you know, and, and I played violin from when I was five. So I guess, and there's no frets there. So I guess you're tuning a bit there or a lot. Um, but I've recently gotten super into choral music, like super into choral music. Um, uh, so I definitely feel a huge connection. There's something about, and this pandemic is awful for this part of it, but hopefully it'll be over and we won't have to worry about that. But when your body is, you know, vibrating with the sound with other people in concert with other people, there's just something really wonderful about it with a chord. A chord is happening in a very unusual, different way than just on guitar. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Anyway. Well, it's interesting I've singing lessons for a long time. Well, it's interesting what you say about the physical vibration when you sing because I mean I I'd be curious your thoughts on that. I mean, I, I, I think that's really powerful in that that's the way that our musical ideas become visceral, right? Of our body when we can sing that pitch. And I have my feelings about maybe certain, for instance, like what flat nine feels like in your body. So sometimes I work with students to say, let's sing this note against this chord and where do you feel it? And I, 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 don't, I don't have a belief that it's universal. I think everybody has to find that place. But I know when I hear sharp nine, it's right in my solar plexus. When you, when you sing it and you have that chord and you just feel that, yeah. maybe a little bit on the tip of my nose too. Yeah. You know what I mean, like if you do that, I think that's the way that takes something so abstract, like for instance, singing extensions or just hearing chords and harmony, when you can relate it to that actual true physical vibration, it be, then it's part of you. you you'll yeah. never mistake it again. Yeah. I mean, do you have a thought, some thoughts about that? Um, I, I just think that makes, that makes total sense to me, what you're saying. Um, and I think it could be different for everybody, how they, experience that, but it's real. I mean, we probably, we do have resonances in our bodies, right? It's like, so that's one thing I've learned from singing. So I did take singing less. I, I, I have really, uh, loved in addition to, I mean, I, I was guitar was my, uh, instrument and I studied guitar and got my degrees in guitar and performed on guitar, but all the way through, I've been taking singing lessons, um, and loving them. 
uh, kind of off and on. Um, uh, so, and one thing that happens that's really cool is you get this, there's this thing called Singer Formant and it buzzes right in your head right here. And it's really awesome. And, and it's where you get that resonance, you know, um, uh, and that's how they do this thing, you know, without microphones, it's crazy. Um, there's all kinds of parallels too. This is, I know I'm off on a trajectory, a, a tangent, but, um, the, uh, like for instance, uh, the, the, the idea of microphones or no microphones. And then the same thing of the idea of what, what volume you're getting from your fingers as opposed to the amplifier. And there's all, all kinds of parallels between everything you throw yourself into and the other things, but lots of parallels between classical and, uh, jazz and rock and everything. And it's interesting to explore them all, but that's the same with the compression, no compression thing. There's all these things, right? Microphone, no microphone, uh, sound you're getting from yourself and your hand, uh, as opposed to from other things. Uh, like amplifiers or even the guitar. Um, uh, the idea of kind of like groove being something that's organically built with the chamber music, the players kind of building it as they they go, rather than a groove being a pre-existing thing like a railroad track almost that everybody jumps onto. Um, uh, the idea of, of sound being um, something that's uh, that you want to kind of make into a beautiful surface, like a compressed surface, as opposed to something that you want to express the feeling through a landscape of different levels, uh, that shape a phrase. I don't know. There's all these very cool little philosophical things. I think what I love about it is that they're all practical things. Mm -hmm. What I really love that both you and Cheryl said was in order to feel how a, a nine feels in your body or like the scale degree that you feel in your nose or in your head, or you have to spend time sitting with these sounds and letting yourself feel them when you play them on the guitar or when you sing them, you, okay. you have to spend time. You have to spend time immersing yourself in music, especially if it's unfamiliar to you. And um, if, if you can do that, if you can say, oh, this is outside of my familiarity, the melodic minor, you know, for example, everybody feels that way at Berkeley because, you know, in the first semester we're working with the major scale and then you get in the melodic minor and that's the first time things kind of switch on you. But if you just sat and you sat with those chords and you sat with those dyads and you sat with those sounds, as they become familiar, you can find a place for them. And that's how the Chinese checkers kind of fall into their holes. Like until you sit with something and let it be familiar to you, it's not going to fall in its hole. Yeah. That's what happened to you that day in the car with blue Bossa, right? Like you've been working on your ear, working on your ear, working on your ear, trying to listen to standards, trying to listen to standards. Like, Oh my gosh, a new repertoire list from a whole different style. And then all of a sudden, you're in the car and all the Chinese checkers fall in the holes. And you're like, holy yeah. cow, there's the third, there's the seven, right. there's the flat seven. You know, that is what happens. But if you don't go slowly, I think what I'm hearing you both say, and you don't do it intentionally from a centered place, it can't pump you. It yeah. Can't you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it really is all about 
taking time and seeing things, whether we're taking time and seeing people, like I feel very, very seen right now. Mm. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, but at taking time too and seeing like, for instance, thanks to wonderful faculty member, Amanda, Amanda Monaco, mm -hmm. I've started a bullet journal. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yes, except the only thing is, is that I'm learning is the only way that it really is going to work is if I give it literally the time every night to sit with it. Right. And a bullet journal is where you write down all your ideas and right. tasks. Right. Project that you're working on. Calendar and, and, you know, monthly view and all this stuff, but all the things that I should be keeping track of that I tend not to unless I give it the time. Yeah, and, and we you know we're talking about all these the, the games and the parties and the hangs and everything. That's just another way to create time and space for people to immerse themselves. And that and Abby's nodding, and that that's how you're doing this. Like if if your idea is I'm gonna look at who you are as a musician, I want you to see yourself, and then I want you to see all the opportunities, even the ones that are scary and unfamiliar. And then I'm mm -hmm. going to create this community and this opportunity for you to really immerse yourself. That's, that's kind of what you're doing here. It's a, it's, it's wonderful to be able to do that because I think it all has also has to do with having the support of the community. For instance, the, the being able to have a concert hall where I can have these people you know, for instance, that, that Abby played on guitar night, that wasn't even my concert. That was yeah, the other guitar night. Um, it was, uh, rock pop. Mm -hmm. And, um, but the fact that the, that we're, we are able to have the halls to, to give people those opportunities that really bring a story to its happy, you know, conclusion. Mm, that's great. And for instance, that Ole, it, Ole will kill me. Ole, uh, do you remember the whole Ole turning up, turning down story with John Knowles' visit? I think you we have had to a wonderful. You have to tell. Okay, so so we had. Um, I think Ole will forgive me. Actually, I know he will. Um, a wonderful student, and we were working in the ensemble on. Uh, he was playing bass at that point, um, and uh, in the ensemble, and uh, it, we were balancing. And I mentioned, I was like, you know what? You could turn down there, you could balance, but he felt that I wasn't hearing what he was doing and was kind of insulting him, which I didn't mean to do at all. I was actually, he was playing beautifully. So he was, you know, well, maybe I shouldn't play at all, you know, um, anyway, but then he actually worked on it. He worked on that. He went home and he, he sat and thought with it and really worked on balance over the next couple of weeks. And then Kim, you had a wonderful guest come in, John Knowles, and you allowed my class to come in and play for him. And uh, just, it was very, it was, I remember we had to work out the scheduling and everything. Anyway, they just kind of, they, they ran in and they played for him and John Knowles, it was the best thing ever. We'd had this, I'd had this big thing with Ole where he was really, he was upset that night after I said that. And, and, um, but then he worked on it and then John Knowles in that meeting completely without this, this, this was nothing that he heard about or that we talked about outside of class. 
And he said to Ole, he, he took like, he singled Ole out and he said, oh my gosh, the dynamic control you have. This is really unusual. You'll have to give me your phone number after because I have some things that I want. Like it was like really, it, it couldn't have been, if I had paid him to say something, it couldn't have been better. It was like the most, that that's my other favorite teaching moment. It was so cool. <laughs> that's beautiful. And uh, for those of you who might not be familiar, John Knowles is one of the master arrangers of Nashville and a master finger picker in the, mm-hmm. in the cohort of Jerry Reed and Chet Atkins. And, and so that's really wonderful. Um, hey, Ian, um, I remember that I met you in one of Abby's classes way back. In the yes! And um, I'm wondering if, if you'd like to ask the question you normally ask and maybe some others of Abby. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm a little I disappointed that you guys even remember me from that class because let's just say Hi. I had a couple moments like Ole in that class. <laughs> you were great. You were fabulous. Um, anyway, so um, first I of all, I really... Which I'll tell you later. Go ahead. Um, I really appreciate like a lot of this conversation and the way that we're talking. You know, you you were talking about singing things. I mean, you're even talking about bullet journaling. And I love this idea that like practicing and getting better at the instrument is like a little deeper than simply like the physicality of it that like somehow like it's the process of not just doing the thing with your body but getting it on the inside of your body um and i and i really dig that you know like i think that there's a tendency to really focus on like the motions and to really like get things under when you're in music school um and i on that topic i mean what's something um maybe something else that like uh that students should be thinking about that they might not realize. I mean, and, and it doesn't have even have to be like specific, you know, I mean, it, it um, can be, you know, a lot of folks uh, have mentioned that a lot of the times it's individual, mm. which I mean, in a way you've demonstrated, like you talked about the way that you like, uh, um, helped Ole get over this giant hump. I mean, and by the way, he did it. He's so, he f- sounds so good, yeah. you know? Uh, and, and, and that's, that's a really neat story or, um, in the way that your student Abby, you know, um, got over their own thing. So, I mean, it could even be individual. Yeah. I would say there's a there's a lot of things this is just one that pops into my head and i'm not sure if this is even the only or the right or whatever but um i remember asking someone um once a very very smart retired psychiatrist who was brilliant and he was telling a story about um a friend of his who was also a very smart psychiatrist i assume uh and, or he said they were, and, um, he was talking about raising kids and he was saying, uh, my friend was asking him, what, what do you think it's, is important, you know, to do when you're helping kids grow and be the best they can be and happy and have happy lives and everything. And I'm sure he put it better than that, but you know what I mean? Um, and, uh, the, his friend, the other psychiatrist said, I know I'm going to make mistakes. Uh, that's just part of the, 
the thing about being a parent and being a mentor, being a teacher, right? I know I'm going to make mistakes. They're going to end up with issues to deal with because of me. I know that. But if I can teach them how to, how to reach out for help, how to ask for help and seek, seek help from the world and from people, um, that's something that is going to be, you know, the most important thing. And that's, that's really will take them through everything. And I think that's a really important thing. I mean, there's a lot of other things, but that's just one thing that occurs to me is being able to look, to look for help and, 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 and find it in, in the people around you or the, the resources around you. Um, and keep looking because very often, uh, um, you don't find the right thing right away. You might even find a, a wall, you know, but to keep, keep looking for, for, so if you take your big questions and even your uncomfortable questions and you just kind of try and look up and see there, it's like the Mr. Rogers thing, you know, look for the helpers, you know? So that's what comes to mind today. <laughs> you know, one thing that came to mind about your story about Ole and, and also Ian, your memory of our class, of that class, is I, I think it's kind of like goes back to what Abby's talking about. Like, I think when you come to a place like Berkeley or when you're in a creative environment and you have a lot of choice, it sometimes makes, in my opinion, the learning process harder because you have to take this leap of acceptance. Like you have to go into an unfamiliar situation and you have to just accept, you have to choose to accept without too much question that what the teacher is showing you is really unfamiliar, but also valuable. And so you have to kind of take all, off the protective armor of all the skills you came in with. And you have to choose to believe that what we're doing is going to be valuable for you, even if it feels in the beginning like it's throwing you off your game. And you, Ole had to accept that. You had to accept that. I did. When, uh, when Abby and I, and, and I, I want to know, Cheryl, what your experience was, but when, when, uh, when I was coming up, that acceptance was when you signed the, the paper to come to the school. It was like, you're going to accept this material and you're going to work on it for eight hours a day or you have to leave now. Like yeah. you're going to get thrown out of school. So there was, I didn't have to go through any kind of deep personal emotional situation to accept these new things that were being thrown at me. It was like, I signed up and here we go. You know, right. and I think, um, in some ways it makes it easier cause you get on the track. Then later you have to branch out and that could be scary. It's a different set of problems that comes, but at a different time. So I, I don't think that you should feel self-conscious Ian about having a moment like that. I think that that is like, you know, the other side of the coin, you go to a really open education and then you have to say like, I'm going to choose to believe that this is real, even if it makes me uncomfortable. And there's going to be a moment for everybody, whether it's public or private, where you're like, I really would rather believe that this isn't true. Yeah. <laughs> I just rather believe that what you're, that maybe if I call it out a little bit, um, you'll back off and then I won't have to go through the pain of, of, uh, working through it. And, and, uh, and then, you know, you worked through it and so did Ole and, and to your obvious like audio 
you know, oral benefit, right? Like you can hear it. It'd be very interesting to hear all of your experiences with that. I remember mine, it was hand position with David Leisner. And I remember literally thinking, this is unfamiliar. This is completely new. You know, I remember that. Uh, I'd be interested to hear what everybody's moments were. Cheryl, what was your experience with that? Did you kind of have to get on the bus there and, or did you feel like you were making choices? Like, did did you feel like you had an education that sort of pushed you into the unfamiliar or did you have to choose to leap there? Well, I'd have to think about that. I mean, we've all had those moments where, I, I mean, I think I could probably think of more moments professionally where I walked into something and was really just totally humbled and like, <laughs> you know, just, okay, I need to learn about this. And I mean, I think about, that maybe when I was went to New York and I was freelancing and trying to do everything I could. Mm-hmm. And then for, in doing that, I learned what I couldn't do and had to say, wow, I can't do that. I'm not very good at that and, and go through that. And so, so maybe I'm going to leave that to, for someone else who's really good at that, you know? So uh, I think that's what really comes to mind or those moments where you, you find your limitations and, uh, you know, it's important because you grow from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll just say that in undergrad, I felt like that. I felt like I was really dropped into this incredibly intense, basically constant workshop, you know, like of classes. And and, um, and I had played the guitar for a long time in, in different styles and, and obviously cl- classical was my focus, but I didn't have, um, the ear training and I would start to feel nervous for ear training on Sunday night. And it was, um, ear training was Tuesday morning. And, um, I had been thrown because of my guitar playing and I had scored really high in music theory on the entrance exams that had that. They tried this experiment and they threw me in a high, a level of ear training that was too high to see if like, oh, if you had these other skills, would you just come up? So I was a wreck. And I didn't say anything to anybody because I thought for sure that if people knew that I didn't have a good year, quote unquote, that they would think I didn't really belong there. It was just like a mistake. So I didn't say anything. And and except to my group of ear training students, we had a support group. Mm. We called it ear training support group. And we went to breakfast after ear training class you know, and just tried to sort it out and sort it out and sort it out. And I just felt like, you know, we would go to the beach. I went to school in Florida for my undergrad. We would go to the beach and bring like theory and analysis books. You know, we'd be like this Faber and piano piece and the oceans going and there's sand and on the book. And like, I mean, I really felt like, okay, I am in the deep end of the pool. And those faculty members, they were very kind and they just pushed you through. Like there was no getting out. And I think the fact that you couldn't get out made us all feel like we were in it together. And so that's what I kind of mean where I feel like in some ways, as hard as that was, it was easier because there wasn't an escape hatch. And I love that like in some of our curriculum, you can choose, but you have to choose to stay. And I really respect that. And Ian, I don't know what, what your experience was at Berkeley in recent years like that, but but I really respect the people who can stay in, in the fire, you know, by choice. 
Yeah, I mean, like even just like that that feeling of the fire, like <laughs> like when you have this thing that seems almost beyond your reach and you just have to go smaller and smaller chunks and slower and like it becomes harder and harder like you know there are tunes that like i'll pick up i'll look and i'll be like oh i don't know this this like real or something and it kind of seems like maybe something else i've learned and it's like oh okay this is fine and then all of a sudden you know i've more or less got it but that little turnaround that's different like in that little thing that just like i don't have anything like that under my fingers and to have to really slow it down and to really think about it and to pull it apart and even like i'm almost not even hearing it correctly because it's it's unfamiliar it's like those little moments now are like actually the best part because then it's like you're finding you're like really finding out like you're not just skating along on the, the stuff you already have like you're really like because like when when you're comfortable there's the things that you can just blow through and you're comfortable you're not growing you know and it's to like to find that spot where you really are like struggling with it mm -hmm. like that's actually the good stuff right yeah yeah right. i think so and abby you you found that you think so and i know cheryl agrees with that too you keep well because abby you today you're still um writing music of your own you're in a duo with norm um and can you talk about your current projects and kind of what you're kind of what are you pushing yourself to do these days what i want to do um first of all is externalize because i've gone through uh you know a, a period where i've done less of that with a kid Mm -hmm. at home and uh externalizing is just an effort you know getting things out there mm -hmm. um so that doesn't even have to do with the creative process that just has to do with putting things out there um that's a little more like housekeeping but um in terms of uh creative stuff uh i'm really loving integrating uh vocal stuff, especially choral stuff into the whole guitar texture thing. So we, we had a, um, uh, I can, I can send you guys this. We, we just completed it yesterday, but I've got a, uh, in the, uh, in rep class last semester, classical rep class, um, we had a, uh, a grad student, a voice from Boston conservatory join the class. He's amazing. And he's doing Joni ensemble this semester. And, um, the things that he chooses to add to the, to the arrangements that we're doing in the Joni ensemble, it's just so interesting. Um, and also to arrange a lot of the kind of the guitar and the instrumental parts for voices and then have them with the instrumental parts. I, I don't know. It's just, I love that. We did a, a piece, um, Norm and I with a, a children's choir, uh, where we were the rhythm section. Um, and actually it was a former drummer from the Joni Mitchell ensemble did it too, but we were rhythm section and then it's choir and, uh, it, it was just really cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm very interested in that kind of mix. I, I think it, that goes back to what Ian, your point is that when you start to realize that the good stuff is in the unfamiliar stuff, mm -hmm. sometimes it leads you to really cool projects. It leads you to yeah. be able to find, you know. I'm going to play rhythm section with a choir. I'm going to make these vocal parts. I'm going to do these different arrangements. 
um, because then your confidence comes from your ability to adapt almost, not just from what you know you're good at. And I don't think I'm good at this, so I'm not going to let that in. Right? Yeah, that's great. Um, hey, Cheryl, what's on your mind as we're kind of coming to the end of the coffee? Well, once again, we have another smoking version of Coffee Talk that I know myself and all the listeners will come back to because there's so much. Abby, you're, you're so deep and just um, thoughtful on so many levels. I learned so much. I'm going to be stealing all your licks. Sure. No, it's the other way around, but thank you. <laughs> hey, Ian, what do you got? What are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, it's the same. I mean, it's it's really cool to like hear a lot of your thoughts, like given how many, like not just your own musicianship, but like your ability to impart it and like talking about like this construction process, like, you know, you, there's like all these incredible alumnus, like alumni of Berkeley that have learned from you. And it's like they didn't get, you know, spit out of the womb as this you know, uh, incredible artists. It's like they were built there. And I think that your ability to impart a lot of like that, um, that musicianship is, yeah, it's good. Yeah. And I want to add Abby that it's, it's really valuable because I, that you're doing this in the department because I think that you're helping all of us, um, who are your colleagues keep building what we're building for ourselves. And, um, and certainly making sure that we um, are well stocked with snacks and are having a good time while we're doing it. <laughs> the jokes, I mean, we can't, we don't have time to get into all the jokes this round, but the jokes are just. I can never see that mochi stuff without thinking of nice. <sighs> the, the ice cream, the little, oh, the, the little ice cream bites. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's amazing. But. We will be reconvening with snacks again, and we hope that many of you can join Very us soon. at these concerts, either remotely or in person, and um, and we'll share our snacks if you can come in person. So, Abby, thank you so much for being our guest on Coffee Talk. Thank you. Thank you, each and every one of you. I, I'm very, very grateful and humbled, and thank you. Welcome. And uh, thank you, Cheryl Bailey, for being here today. And thank you, Ian, Steed. Cheers to you. Uh, cheers to all of you. And um, we'll talk to you next time on Coffee Talk.